Well, good morning. It's good to see you here. We had, Matt and I hadn't quite coordinated on when's he going to stop playing and I'm going to come up, so I think we just, but we worked it out, so it's great. Um, as Dan said, we're, we're in the season, I, I wanted to start off this morning, I thought about starting off with saying, he's still risen, or he's still risen indeed. Yeah, but that seemed a little like uh, a little over the top. So we're not going to do that. But it is the fact. But it is fact that we're in a season where Christ is risen, and during the there's a 40-day period when he, from his resurrection until his ascension, when he appears to there he had at least about 10 different appearances that we know of, 10 different occasions that he appeared to people um, and, and spoke to them, talked to them. Um, some of them touched him. Um, Paul says in 1 first, in first Corinthians 15, up to 500 people. So who are these people? Who are these people who encountered the risen Jesus and how did it affect them? So when we started to get together to put this series together, that is Dan and Angela and Matt and me, we thought, well, this would make a series that will go through, basically up to the first of June, up through, up through Pentecost, to talk about some of these encounters with the risen Jesus and how it affected their faith, how it affected their walk of faith. And I wanted to, I wanted to start off by, um, with some pictures. So in 2019, Deb and I were... We were part of a tour group with some friends to, to Israel, and, and we um, went to um, around Jerusalem. There is the site of, in the fourth century, the, the church, which at that time the Catholic church, um, said there's a site, and they called it the church, where they built a basilica called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It's a big, big church. It's been... Um, the site of many, many conflicts, including one just yesterday. And the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church look at that as the site of, of, his, of Christ's burial and resurrection, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. In the, in the 19th century, some German and British scholars and archaeologists who were Protestant said, yeah, that doesn't really fit the descriptions. It's, for one thing, it's inside the city, with what would have been the ancient city. We should look for it. So, so they um, set a different site called the Garden Tomb. And so we went to see the Garden Tomb. And uh, back up a couple of slides so we can start off with the... Yeah. So you can imagine that this has been called, since the 1920s, this has been called Skull Hill. Remember, Golgotha means place of the skull. And, and you can sort of see a skull if you look at it at the right angle, but more importantly, you can see that there's a series of caves which were used as, as burial sites. So there were burial sites that were used from the time of Christ and earlier in this, in this location. So the next slide shows some of our tour group going into uh, one of those tombs, and you can see that it's a small opening where it's been closed off by a, a boulder that... Um, to get into. And then the next slide is, this is what one of the tombs looked like. This is the kind of tomb he was probably, that Jesus was probably laid in. It's kind of carved out of the rock there, and um, it's kind of room for one person. Generally speaking, you don't need room for more than one person in a tomb, but, um, 
but you know, that, so that was, that's kind of what it looked like. Um, so I want to keep that up while we talk about what was happening with this resurrection, with his resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is the single most defining part of our life as followers of Christ. As we are on this pilgrimage, as we're doing this walk of faith, as we're, as we're progressing towards however, however you imagine your spiritual journey, the resurrection is, is the key point, the key, the key thing that we have to keep in mind. The thing with the resurrection is it doesn't provide any sort of a quick fix. It's not like you can come hear about it on a Sunday morning and say, I'm good. You can't even come and hear about it in a short series, like, you know, eight or ten weeks, and say, yeah, I got it, I got it, I got it. Because it's something that has to be experienced. It has to be lived out in the lives of, of Christians day by day. We're on a pilgrimage, a walk of faith. We live the resurrection as we go. If we're saying we want to be the church, so people come to church, but we want to be the church and go to them, well, we better be, we're living the resurrection. We are showing them this is what the risen Christ represents. This is how he has changed our lives. Dan used another term a while back. It's a long obedience in the same direction. There's no quick fixes here. This is a lifelong process. So, so Jesus appeared to up to 500 people. And you know, the way my mind works is, as you may know by now, is to say, okay, let, let's talk about the people he did not appear to. I mean, after all, I mean, he appeared to 500, but there were lots of other people he did not appear to. So let's talk about some of those people. He did not go back to Pilate. He did not go back to the civil authorities and say to them, so you knew I was innocent. The whole time you knew I was innocent. And yet, you convicted me. You spineless political hack. When we celebrate a great victory of things, and much less important victories than, than Jesus did, it's a temptation to go back and say, see, nobody believed in me. He didn't go to the high priests, Anna and Caiaphas. He didn't go and say, huh, you are the, so, supposed to be the spiritual leaders of God's people. Here was God. I am God. The single greatest event in the history, the spiritual history of the world. And you screwed it up. And you killed me. How does that feel? For all of history, people are going to know what lousy spiritual leaders you were. He doesn't do that either. How about this one? Do you think he goes back to Barabbas? I don't think he does. We don't have any history. To go back to Barabbas and say, you know, you were guilty. And you know that the wages of your sin is, were death. You deserve to die. But I, an innocent man, died in your place so that you would be kept alive. How does that feel? 
There's a place he could have laid the four spiritual laws on, on him, couldn't he have? But he didn't, as far as we know. He didn't go back to anybody who had an agenda of their own, like Barabbas did. He didn't go back and say, okay, nobody that he went to said, oh, we need, we need to get this word out. We know, here's, how, here's how we get the word out. Here's how we monetize this. Those people came along a few centuries later, but, you know, in the history of the church. Those weren't the people he went to. Who did he go to? He went to the people who had followed him before his death and resurrection. He went to the women who were the last at the, at the cross and in the first ones at the tomb. He went to his disciples, this group of, of people who had followed him for three years of his ministry and had been through all of this. They had seen his way of life. They had heard him, his words. They'd seen all the signs and they believed in him. And he, those are the ones he went back to. They were fairly ordinary people by and large, but they became extraordinary people they accomplished extraordinary things because of their encounter with the risen Jesus. And how do they respond? I would say there's one exception to that, and very important exception. So one person he went to that um, did not follow him during his life, and that was the Apostle Paul. And we'll, that one, that, we'll come up with that one later in the series. Because Paul himself points out that he is the exception of that of all the people that Jesus appeared to. So they became, the, but the people became the saints and the founders of the church because they were transformed by their encounter with the risen Jesus. Every person he appeared to responded with similar things. They responded with awe. They responded with wonder. They responded with fear. They thought he was dead, and here he isn't dead. So why fear? Fear doesn't mean they were simply scared. It means we, we have fear when we're in a situation where we realize all of a sudden, I am not in control of this situation. I'm not the center of the world. Um, there's something happening here and I don't know what it is and I'm afraid. It's a feeling of being somewhat disoriented or confused or not quite sure. We often have that feeling when we encounter Jesus. But here's the important thing. I haven't done a study of this, but I would guess that the most common command you would find in all of the scriptures is fear not. Fear not. Yeah, you don't know what's going on. Yeah, you're not the center of the world. Yeah, you'd, but you know the center of the world. You know who knows all the things. You know the person. Fear not. So even though they met him with fear, they encountered him with fear, we're going to see it again and again. He always was responding, fear not, peace be with you. Not one of them said, you know what, I knew what was going to happen. 
I knew this is how it was going to work. I figured this all out. I heard you talk about Jonah in the three days, and I got, oh, three days? Okay, got three days. And I heard you were going to tear down the temple, and the temple, you know, oh, okay, I got it. I figured it all out. Not a single person said that. Because nobody had figured it out. You know, we think we've got our lives figured out. And by the grace of God, sometimes we see we do. Or we think we do. He knows how far he can push us. We don't. On our walk of faith, on our pilgrimage of faith, we have to understand, we, aren't, we don't figure it out. But we are encountering the risen Jesus, and he does know the direction, and he does know the path. Okay, so let me just recap briefly. We're going to do in John chapter 20, and I'll just say that of these occasions, we didn't try to, when we organized the series, we didn't try to put them in order at all. So we were looking at the calendar of meetings here and said, okay, we need to do this before Confirmation Sunday. We need to do this one on Communion Sunday and so on. So don't imagine that there's a, a timetable here. But this is actually is at the beginning. So at the beginning of John chapter 20, Mary Magdalene and some other women we know from the other Gospels arrives at the tomb. And they see that the tomb is empty. They can look in, they can see that the tomb is empty. So they go and they tell Peter and John. Peter and John then rush to the tomb. Why do they rush to the tomb? Well, they don't really think Mary is wrong. They just think, well, she's grieving, she's upset. It's a difficult emotional situation. Maybe she missed something. You know what, we trust her, but we need to verify. Trust, but verify. Strictly speaking, they don't encounter Jesus at this time, but they will it a little bit later. Now, in John chapter 20, we read that John outruns Peter to the tomb and sees that it is empty. So if we can have the, script, the scriptures up. Thanks, Jeff. Then Simon, uh, let me get my Bible out. Well, let me just read it. Then Simon Peter came along behind him, that is John, came along behind John, and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. What happens here? And why does John make the point about the grave clothes? It seems like it's an unusual thing to, to include. Why does he say that? Think about it. Mary, Mary Magdalene says, maybe they've moved the body. The Roman authorities say, well, Somebody robbed the grave. But, you know, a grave robber doesn't, wouldn't unwrap the grave clothes and fold them neatly behind them. If they moved the body, they would move the whole thing. They wouldn't, they wouldn't take off the grave clothes and fold them up. So John immediately realizes this tomb is empty, and it's empty because Jesus did something. 
Jesus rose from the dead. He still didn't quite believe. He still didn't quite get the idea. Maybe he didn't, maybe, we don't really know. Maybe he thought Jesus would go straight from rising from the dead to being ascended into heaven and didn't realize there was a 40-day period of him walking around with no stop. But, you know, but at any rate, they see it. Trust, but verify. These folded grave clothes have been an important picture for me. There are times when I'm confused, I'm grieving, I'm frustrated, I'm disappointed with God and how he's doing things, I'm disappointed with myself and how I'm responding to that, I'm just I'm just, and I don't know what's going on. But in my mind, I go to the tomb, and I say, huh, it's still empty. Huh, here are the grave clothes. Look how neatly they're folded. I'm not in charge, but Jesus is. So in my mind, I often in my life, have had to go back and sort of, in my imagination, metaphorically fold those grave clothes. Check those grave clothes one more time. Trust, but verify. I believe it. I've heard people talk about it my whole life. I've sung songs and listened to podcasts and listened to books and read books and so on. I believe it, but I need to verify it. So there are a lot of times when I have to go back and say, okay, wait, this tomb is really empty, and these grave clothes really are folded neatly here, and Jesus ain't here. Okay. Now, so that's the first. We're going to talk about all of these. But then Mary, Mary Magdalene, she doesn't grasp what's happening at all. She lingers at the tomb, grieving. Jesus appears to her, although she doesn't recognize her. Can we have the next slide? Then Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they put him. As she's at this, she's turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Next slide. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned to him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Picture this scene. In her grief, Mary Magdalene doesn't know what's going on. She doesn't recognize Jesus when she sees him. But he, he says to her, his very, the very first words of the risen Jesus are, why are you crying? Why are you crying? Who are you looking for? 
first thing he says is a risen Lord. And she resp- and then he calls her by name. I, I, I'm a fairly hard-hearted, non-emotional, cynical guy. But you can't read this without understanding the tenderness and the gentleness of this passage. The grace, the gentleness he shows with Mary, it's the comfort that she needs at this point for her faith. At this point, she realizes what all of us have to know. The resurrection is personal. Jesus called her by name, by name, by her personal name. The resurrection is personal. It is, yes, it's something that we learn about, something that we sing and celebrate, something that we talk about together, something about we, but for each of us, every single one of us, the resurrection has to be personal. We have to think about Jesus called me by name. And he calls us by name again and again and again. Remember, this is not when Mary Magdalene becomes a follower of Christ. She'd been a follower of Christ for some years before this. This is how she walks on now in light of the resurrection. So we have two really helpful pictures here. We have the the first is the empty tomb and the grave clothes that we can go back, we can trust and verify and say, okay, yeah, that's right, that's right. We can, I can look this up for myself, I can study this, I can get this, I can figure it out. Yep, that's right, that's, that's trust but verify. And then we have Mary, where Jesus calls her by name personally. Both of those are really helpful pictures on our pilgrimage, on our walk of faith, as we walk in faith. He hasn't appeared to Peter and John yet, but he's going to. And you have to say, well, why did he appear to these people? What did this accomplish? He had told them all they needed to know. They had had all the teachings that they needed. He had shown them all that they would need to do. He had sent them out. They had been doing works in his name. They had been his, witness. They had been his witnesses. But now that he's alive and walking around among them, they can see how it all fits together. They had circumstantial evidence before this. They had his teachings. They had his signs. They had his empty tomb. They had his defolded grave clothes. But with each of his appearances, it goes from circumstantial evidence to saying, now they're participants. Now they are part of this process. Now they are involved. To put it another way, they go from being sort of consumers to being owners of what happened. You know, if we in the church, we can come, and we do. We, it's great. We come together. We hear teachings. Most weeks it's good. Some weeks it's my turn, and it's, you know, it's kind of iffy. But... But, you know, we hear the teachings, we sing the songs, we love those, I love those old songs. How many generations of people have sung this little light of mine? Um, you know, and, and it's great. But we have to be owners 
of what happens. It's got to be my little light that's shining, <laughs> right? Because I had a personal encounter with the resurrected Jesus. Because I can trust him and I can verify, I can go to the scriptures, I can go to other things and verify this is what happened. Next, he's going to appear to the disciples as a group. So John chapter 20, next slide. On the evening of, the, of that first day of the week, when the disciples came together, there were 10 of them, uh, at least 10. Judas Iscariot, of course, had committed suicide, so he's not there. And we're going to discover in a minute that Thomas isn't there. With the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he showed them, after this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when, he saw, when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are, if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. All right. They begin their meeting with fear, but by the end, they are overcome with joy. They are now Jesus' representatives. He is now commissioning them to go be the church. The concept of the church hasn't existed yet, but be the church. Go be the church. So we need to reassure ourselves that the resurrection is real and personal, that Jesus had conquered death, that Satan's one best weapon against us has been completely disarmed. Maybe for us in our walk, it means viewing the empty tomb, seeing the folded grave clothes in our minds. Remember, remember that he calls us personally by name. Maybe it means perceiving his wounds, all of these things. He was coming to meet them where they were so that their faith would be built up. We need to trust but verify, respond with joy, and be his representatives. So we're on this path of faith, this living the resurrection path of being the church. And sometimes that path gets a little more difficult. takes us through some places and sometimes we as we're walking along we go through this little village called doubt and sometimes we it's just a little village and we can kind of get by it a little quickly sometimes it's a town it takes us a little longer and sometimes it's a whole thriving metropolis but we've got to walk through this maybe maybe not all of us do I suspect that more of us do than we talk about, that we have these times of genuine doubt. And I'll just point out that the disciples did too. Up until the ascension, it says in Matthew, whatever, at the end of Matthew, that they were still doubting. Some of them were still doubting. Now, at this passage where he's with the disciples, Thomas wasn't with them, right? And So Thomas isn't with them, and because he's not with them, and because of what happens here, Thomas acquires a nickname that has come through all the years, right? His nickname is... Oh, no, actually his nickname was Didymus, um, <laughs> because he had a twin brother. Uh, um, so, okay. I want to talk about doubt for a minute. 
So first off, let me talk about Thomas a minute. Thomas is mentioned, and most of the times when we read the list of the disciples, some of them we, we get there, we get who they are. You know, Peter, John, James, we know who they are. We know what they're like, right? Other times it's just a name on a page, and we don't get a sense of who they are. Thomas. Thomas is mentioned twice other, two other times in the Gospel of John, and we get a very clear picture of Thomas and his personality. In John chapter 11, Jesus and his disciples get news that Lazarus is sick. Their friend Lazarus is sick. And, um, and they're called to go visit him. That comes at a time when the authorities are trying to kill Jesus. They're trying to capture and kill Jesus. And so they're, you know, they know that if they go down there to Bethany, which is right by Jerusalem, that they're putting themselves at risk. So they're debating whether they should go or not. And there's this debate going on. And finally, Jesus says, look, I'm going to go. And Thomas says, in effect, well, if Jesus is going to die during this trip, we may as well die too. That's what he says. I paraphrased it, but that's basically what he says. So you get a picture of what kind of a guy he is. There's a certain, well, if that's what's going to happen, that's what's going to happen. All right? In John chapter 14, there's a long, that's the long discourse in the upper room where Jesus is talking to his disciples. And he says, I'm going to go away, but I'm preparing a place for you that where I am, you can be also. And when I, and, and Thomas says, well, where are you going? And if you don't tell us where we're going, how are we going to know the way? That's Thomas. And Jesus responds with, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Thomas is very loyal to Jesus, but he's a bit of a pessimist. He's got questions. He's not, you know, well, let me ask you this one more thing. Well, let me clarify this. Let me, let me make sure I got this right. That's Thomas. He has questions. Now, why isn't he with them? Let's see. Why is he not with the rest of them? There's a long-standing tradition, which is no support for anything else. But it, I didn't realize how far back this went until I started looking into it. That th the reason Thomas isn't there is that at the crucifixion, he said, that's it. He had isolated himself. He did what many of us do when we're grieving, when we're confused, when we're upset. We go off in a corner and grieve by ourselves. Don't know. It could have been he had something else going on that day. Who knows? But we know that he wasn't there. All right. So let's, let's read the passage. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, so you, you never, all right, one of the twelve was not with the other disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. Listen to Thomas's response. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Now, this, now they got Thomas back with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he turned to Thomas and he said to Thomas, Put your hands here. 
Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas is skeptical. All of them had doubts. But Thomas voiced them. Thomas is the one who said, unless I can put my fingers in the nail holes, or put my hand in his side, I will not believe. I want to talk about doubt. I grew up, I've told you before, my parents were devout followers of Christ. Devout followers of Christ. And I grew up in a family where, and in a culture where being a follower of Christ was what we were taught from a very early age. One of my grandfathers was a minister. I had uncles on each side of my family that were ministers. A cousin who I'm close to was a missionary and then a minister. If anybody, and I'm sure many of you have similar experiences, I knew the gospel. I knew about the resurrection from the time I was a little, little kid. I, I knew how to go into the scriptures and verify, and I knew how to pray, and I knew how to talk to people. I, grew up, I saw so many examples of faithful Christians on their walk. And yet, I had doubt. I was plagued with doubt. What if this isn't true? What if, what if this is all just a lie? That was a real problem. In fact, I wasn't taught this. I think I just absorbed it from the culture that we were in. Doubt was presented to me as, well, it's, maybe it's a sin. Okay, it's not a sin like armed robbery, but it's a sin. It's something that good Christians shouldn't have. I don't believe that anymore. I think that was wrong. Because I know that I was having real doubt and I was a real follower of Christ. And I think that many others of you have had the experience of doubt. What if this isn't true? And unless I can verify it for myself, unless I can do this, I will not believe. Then about 30 years ago, I read a book. Or I often read books. Now I'm gonna tell you in a little aside. So we do this little break where you say good morning to other people when you have this little thing. And you know, left to my own devices, I would stand like this. You know, I'm not going to meet anybody. I don't want to be around these people. This is not, you know. Uh, but you know, you're not allowed to do that. And you're supposed to greet people, and you're supposed to. So I walked over and said hello to Michael. Now I don't know. Have we had a conversation before? Maybe just a few words here and there. Never had a conversation. Michael. Michael said to me, so didn't know, don't know Michael really. He said to me, Oh, I, you're going to talk about doubt. Oh, I've been praying for you. Are you going to mention Oz Guinness? My mouth dropped open because I was going to talk about Oz Guinness. Do you, are you familiar with Oz Guinness? Anybody familiar with Oz Guinness? Okay, so Oz Guinness, he's quite elderly, but he's, he was a Christian writer, 
thinker, speaker, apologist in the, especially 1980s, 1990s, um, kind of on the academic side, uh, as opposed to being on the inspirational side of things. Um, he's descended from the Guinness Brewing Company, so he's got a good head. Um, you you got to take some of the easy ones, because somebody else is going to beat you to them if you don't, right? So, right? It's a family Sunday, guys. You got to... You know, something for the kiddies, you know. All right, so I heard him speak at the UPrez. I don't know. I suspect what he was talking about was the problems of megachurches in, you know, 1990-ish. Um, but he's written a number of books on doubt. And neither Michael nor I nor could remember exactly what, which book it was. Dust of Death. Dust of death. All right, it's called The Dust of Death but we remembered what he wrote. Because it had a huge impact. Doubt is being of two minds. Doubt is being balanced between two things. And we can't live with that indefinitely, at least on important things. We can't live balanced on a balance beam for very long. Our minds won't allow it. Our souls won't allow it. Sooner or later, doubt is going to resolve itself into something else. It could resolve itself into unbelief. I just reject this outright. Or it could resolve itself into conviction, into deeper faith yet, it could move us forward in our faith so that we believe even more strongly than we did before. Thomas. Thomas is the one person at the end of all of this that he says, oh, my Lord and my God. His conviction, his doubt, he has crossed through that, that, unbel that unbelief, that balance, and he's arrived at true conviction. We don't know if Thomas actually put his fingers in the nail holes. We don't know if he put his hand in the side. It doesn't say anything of that. But what we do know is that his doubt had become true faith and conviction. Just a quick piece on Thomas, because um, you, you know, all of the, most of the time, we don't know what happened to the apostles after, after, after this. Um, there are various stories and legends and so on. Of course, we know for Peter and John and Matthew, we know, moved to Ephesus and so on. A few other things like that. But um, most of the time, we don't know what happened. But Thomas is actually fairly well um, attested to what happened with Thomas. From the earliest days of the church, what happened with Thomas has been you know, you can take it for what it's worth. It was a tradition, right? But Thomas apparently moved east. He went through what's now the Arabian Peninsula, through the land of Pakistan, what's now Pakistan, founding churches and proclaiming the gospel. On into India. Thomas apparently evangelized India. There are churches in India who still say they are descended from the Christians who were evangelized by Thomas in the first century. 
And he was there for at least 20 years, preaching the gospel. There are less well-attributed traditions that he may have gone even to Sri Lanka or Indonesia or even over the mountains to China. Hey, Doubting Thomas, how about Conviction Thomas? This is a man whose encounter with the risen Christ changed not only his life, but the lives of thousands of people. So, so whatever it takes for us to believe and to walk by faith, we see in these passages how Jesus has been gracious and kind enough to provide that. He called Mary by name so that the resurrection becomes personal for her. He comforts her in her grief. He provides direct physical evidence. He provides both that he's not in the grave and he's walking around alive. And he comes to Thomas using Thomas's own words to ease his doubts. This is living the resurrection. This is what it's like for us. Whatever it takes, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will provide for us to walk this path. Let me pray and then wrap up. Lord, there's no greater experience, no greater experience than having them be walking with you. I have to say, I've, there are many, many seasons in my life when I've been a stumble bum, just trying to get along. I thought I was on the path, but maybe I wasn't. And how faithful you were, have always been, to walk with us, that we were never walking by ourselves. Never. That you were always there and always willing to meet us wherever we were. Call us by our name personally to provide whatever evidence so we could verify. To comfort us and assure us in our doubts so that our doubts become conviction. Thank you, Lord. I have... The, the, one more slide, we'll use it as the benediction. Now, you know how this works. That in, um, in, they often put it in brackets um, in Bible translations. The phrases and the words and the verses that are not in some of the most reliable translations. So I did the same thing here. So I put in brackets some things that are not in some of the most reliable translations. Right? This is the end of John chapter 20. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you, people of Cascade Covenant Church in North Bend, Washington, in April 2023, may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. Amen.